0: Dorman Rogers is uh, walking around security right now. I'm not sh- sure, you know, having a 115 year old guy doing security makes me a little bit nervous. But Dorman is—he's kind of mean to me, but he is a—he is a great cook. How many of you know that? A great pastry cook. He is—he uh, cooks great chocolate pies and candies and. I asked him one time. I said, "Dorman, where did you get those recipes?" He said, "Well, when I came over from England on the Mayflower, I just brought them over here with me." And many of you are not fluent enough in history. That was sixteen twenty. If you remember, the Pilgrims came over. We're going to look tonight. If you got a Bible, you can turn to Second Chronicles chapter seven. And please tell Dorman what I just said when you see him. Okay. <laughs> Second Chronicles. I'm sorry, Chronicles. Big difference. One is in the New Testament, one is in the Old Testament, and normally when you say Chronicles and people hear that in a sermon, they begin to head to the restroom because they're afraid what might uh, come, but this is, hopefully, there's some good stuff. Second Chronicles chapter 7. We're going to talk about a recipe for revival. A recipe is a set of instructions that shows you how to use a process to, to make something, correct? You, you have a... a uh, my wife is a good cook. She uses recipes, and she puts a little list and a little of that. And and I don't care about any of that. I just want to eat it when it's done. Amen. But a recipe is important for the eating to be good. No, no question about it. Here's a little context of 2 Chronicles chapter seven. It's we believe that First and Second Chronicles were written by God through the the preacher, prophet, teacher, leader Ezra. It was probably about 450 to 400 B.C. in there, 400, uh, 25 years maybe, let's say, before Jesus Christ. And it's an interesting book. It can be hard to follow because the, the Jewish people have come back from exile in, from Babylonia. And Jerusalem has been destroyed. They're trying to rebuild the city. And there's a, a lot of history. In other words, he's talking backwards about things. And in this chapter, he's actually talking about what happened 400 years earlier when Solomon uh, built the temple. So he's talking about that. And and look in verse 13, which kind of uh, will be the the lead-in to us. It says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, the agricultural society, think about this, or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence, among my people. Pestilence just sounds bad, doesn't it? What's wrong with them tonight? Why aren't they at church? That pestilence. I mean, that does. There's no way that, that you know, you go to you go to one of our doctors here in a church, what's wrong? Pestilence. There's no way that's good. And and he's again, Ezra is talking back to Solomon's day. And listen, here's what God was saying. Sometimes, sometimes life's just tough on us, but sometimes when things are upside down and everything is miserable, sometimes that's the hand of the punishment of God. And he's talking about history, this was true, but he's also talking about for them in their life uh, currently. Charles Stanley, you know who Charles Stanley is, The, the prolific writer and preacher from Atlanta, Georgia? He said that he believes that we are in the most critical Time in the history of our country. Now, let me say this: He said that in 2010, things are not better today than they were then. We need a revival. We need a revival in our country. We need a revival in our city. We need a revival in our church. And all that happens when we have a revival in our own lives, in our own heart. Probably the clearest verse in the Bible about how to see a new work of God in your life, in our church, and our world, is found in this passage. I want to give you God's recipe for revival. And, and it begins, it begins, it's for Christians. It's God's people. God's people. If we're going to put in the pot what we need for revival, it starts with us. In verse 14, he says, If my people, I'm going to read the whole verse here right now. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, there's conditions, if and then, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Certainly, he was talking to Israel and to the Jewish people, and he was telling them, Look, man, you're looking at everything outside to cure what's wrong in your life, to cure what's wrong in your spiritual life and in the temple and in the synagogue. And we are, too. Folks, we're God's people. You, you know, the term Christian comes from Acts chapter 11, verse 26 it says, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and a, taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians because they were followers of who? Jesus Christ. And they were, that was a complimentary title probably. May have been insulting in some ways, but to us it's a complimentary title. Folks, listen. If you're a Christian, you're God's people. As a church, we're we're God's, this is the body of of Christ. And and if revival's going to happen in our land, revival's going to happen in our city, revival's going to happen in our life, it's got to start with us. Mark Twain said this, probably sarcastically, a hundred plus years ago, the church is always trying to reform everybody else. Maybe the church ought to try to reform itself first. There's truth to that. We're having a revival speaker here Sunday who's a great speaker. And, and, and for us to set the table for him, we need to have it happening in our heart. We need to have it happening in our heart right now. Folks, listen, I, I am I am forgetting the right people in the White House. I'm forgetting the right people in the courthouse and the state house and in the schoolhouse. But revival is going to start in the church house. We cannot expect the politicians... To change our land. That's the call that God has given for us. Folks, this is a call tonight that's for you and for me if you're a Christian. Revival starts with God's people. Here's the second ingredient, and that's humility. Humility. Verse 14, and this will be our thrust verse tonight. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves. The word humble... The Hebrew word, remember the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, means to be low or to bow. The, the antonym of that is to be proud or arrogant. It's that aggressive assertiveness. In other words, God was telling them and he's telling us, you want, you want God to work, don't look and blame everybody else. by a mirror and let it start with us. Let it start with you. And God doesn't work and move in the midst of arrogant people. He's talking to religious people then, and I believe he's talking to us tonight. I think humility is twofold. Number one, it's before God. We've got to humble ourselves before God. Submit ourselves to God. Folks, judge yourself before God. Here's what you come up with. He's the creator, and you're the creation. He's God, and I'm not, and you're not. And what needs to happen in your life and in my life is we need to make a decision if we really want. And folks, this isn't just for Sunday, this needs to be in our life all the time. That we are going to constantly lift up Jesus and deny ourselves. Adrian Rogers was a great preacher in Memphis, Tennessee, for many years. He tells a story about an encounter he had with God as a young man. He had gone out in his town, and he went to the football field to pray, and he laid down on the the field. It was real grass, not artificial grass. This would have been tough with artificial grass. And he says he began to pray, He felt the presence of God. and As he felt the presence of God, he felt the need to humble himself more. And so he put his face into the grass. And as he said, as he felt the presence of God more and more, he took his hands and he just dug a hole and he stuck his face down in the dirt as a symbolic way like we do when we bow before God and say, God, you're God and I'm not. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves. Before the Lord and he will exalt you. A lot of people want to be exalted. They want to be honored. They want to be used by God. You want to be used by God? It starts by getting low and letting God lift us up. Remember the old saying, you you can be too big for God to use. You can never be too little for God to use. God's going to work in your life, my life, our families when we humble ourselves. Billy Graham said this and it's absolutely true. You don't want God to humble you. Do you? You want me to pray that? God? I want you to humble Jeremy McGee. No, you don't want me praying that. Because God humbles you. He really will humble you. That's why God says, humble yourself. Make the choice. Humble yourself before God. And and but folks, it's 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 twofold. Humble yourself before others. Before others. I'm speaking as a preacher. I've been around my kind a lot through the years. And it amazes me how many preachers would say they're humble before God, but they, they carry themselves with such an arrogance before other people. Quit shaking your head, Linda. You're supposed to say, no, that never happens. You can walk in some church and, you, you, you know, all you can see is the top of people's nostrils because they're looking down on you, Right? Philippians 2.3, listen to what Philippians 2.3 says. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others, read that last part, more significant than yourselves. You know, that's why Jesus says the greatest among you is the one who serves you. We're, all, we should, we're to be servants. Folks, God is not going to work in your life, my life, or if, in our church. No matter how much Bible trivia we know, how gifted we are, how good our technology is, how cold we keep the building to keep you awake, amen. God is not going to work where there's arrogance. Let's humble ourselves before God and other people. Here's the third Ingredient And it's a beautiful one. It's much better than that last one. And that's prayer. That's prayer. Verse 14. If my people humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Let me explain. Because the seek my face and prayer go, go hand in hand here. That phrase to, to seek my face, if you're taking notes... It's the idea of a priority. It's a deliberateness. It's it's begging someone. The Amplified Translation of the Bible says it's to crave the face of God. How many of you are are begging God about some stuff? I I am. I promise you I am. Well, that's not dignified. You think you're going to please God by being sophisticated before Him? Are impress him. God says, I want my people to seek my face, to come after me with all their heart. And then he says, seek my face and pray. The word prayer there, the biblical word prayer, means praying for others, praying for ourselves, praying for our church and our community. Again, that word just, just goes hand in glove with seek. It means with sincerity, our urgency, we need to come to God. No, not every prayer is a crying, begging, pleading. But God's saying, listen, things need to be on our heart and in our mind. When we have a passion when we come to God and we pray. Are you passionate when you pray, at least occasionally, about something? There was a, a, a story of three ministers who were arguing about the best way to pray, the best Posture for prayer it was a Jewish rabbi, a Catholic priest, and a Pentecostal preacher. Kind of a different group there. The Jewish rabbi said, well, the best way to pray is that you, you, you pray on your knees. You pray on your knees. And the Catholic priest said, uh, well, that, that's good too, but you need a kneeling bench to pray. That's the best pot, posture to pray. And the Pentecostal preacher said, you need to stand with your hands in the air when you pray and there was a telephone man in the office with him. He goes, guys, I, I hate to interrupt you, but I found the best posture to pray was when you're hanging upside down 30 feet in the air from a telephone pole. <laughs> you know, honestly, I believe our country's about 40 feet upside down on a telephone pole. Rustin, we're a little bit shielded from it, but it's coming if it doesn't get right. How do we change our country? We change our country by changing us, by changing our church, by changing our community, by changing our families. Some of our families are train wrecks. How's that going to change? Not by wishful thinking, but by begging God, pleading God, humbling ourselves. Sometimes God's got to hang us upside down to get our attention to pray. That's what God's saying here. I want you to pray and seek my face. E.M. Bounds was a a great minister, wrote a lot of books on prayer. And and I love one thing he said. He said, there's no substitute for praying. Preaching doesn't substitute for praying. Singing doesn't substitute for praying. Reading your Bible, as important as that is, does not substitute for praying. One thing about Jesus, his disciples looked at him and his life, they didn't say, Jesus, teach me how to preach. Jesus, teach me how to explain Greek words to people. Jesus, teach me how to lead worship. Jesus, teach me how to disciple. They said, Jesus, teach me how to pray because they knew that was the source of his power and his life. Folks, if you want revival in your life and in your family and in your church and in our community, I plead with you, let's be men and women who pray and pray and pray and don't give up and pray here's the, the the fourth ingredient this is an ugly word and it's repentance how many of you would rather pray than repent how many of you know that praying without repenting is like riding a stationary bike it makes you feel like you're doing a lot but you aren't getting anywhere no most people don't i'm amazed at the goofiness i hear on prayer verse 14 Pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. The word wicked there means bad. It means bad actions or bad words. It means anything that's inferior towards others or towards God. It's the word of malignancy. You understand, we know what malignancy is here in this room. It's that tumor that spreads. God says wickedness and sin is a, is a malignant tumor. Whether that's apathy or laziness or rebellion or a filthy tongue or bad habits. How do we repent? Let me give you two steps. First, you confess your sins. You confess your sins to God. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible to me, and I say that about a lot because I love so many, is 1 John 1, 1.9. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if, and this is written to Christians, we confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess was made up of, of two Greek words. It means to say the same thing. It means to agree with. And so when I confess my sin, I'm agreeing with God about my behavior. It's sin. It's my fault. Hey, did you hear that? It's whose fault? It's my fault. It's your fault when you sin. It's, it's, it's agreeing with God. And it's being specific about the junk in our life. Years ago, I, I went to a Christian concert. I have no idea if this group exists anymore. Or, or, or De Carmo and Key. Any of y'all ever heard of them? And I've been to four concerts in my life two rock and roll and two Christian. And both of them, it was way too loud. That just wasn't my cup of tea. One of them, there was funny smoke wasn't at the Christian concerts, but but the lady at DeGarmo and Key, y'all just got that. She, uh, she, she stopped in the middle of the concert, and she talked about her Christian development. She said the first year after she was saved, she didn't really know how to pray. So when she would confess her sin, she would just say, God, forgive me, I've sinned. And she said a dullness and a spiritual, a, a dryness came over her, and she couldn't really get out of it. And she said she talked to... Someone who is farther along in the faith, and they told her confession means you get specific. You don't say things like, God, if we've sinned or forgive my sins. You you get specific. You name your sins. You own your sins. You throw them out. Oh, that's too negative. No, it's one of the most healthy things you can do. Repentance starts with confession, but it doesn't end there. Here's the second part. It's turning from your sins. See, confession's not real without a turning from our sins. What he, say, what he says, if they will turn from their wicked ways. The word repentance is turning. Repentance is I'm going one way and I turn around and I go the other way. It's a 180. Here's how most of us repent. I'm going the wrong way. I turn around and go this way. And I go, huh, that was really pretty fun, right? <laughs> Some of us just live in a circle. Now, listen... There's things we're going to struggle with the rest of our lives, and we may, we're not going to be perfect, but repentance is a heart and a desire for your life to be different. It's, it's a change of direction and a change of heart about our sins and what's wrong about those malignancies in our life. What do you need to repent of this evening? Maybe there's stuff going on that only you and God know that if you don't get it right, everybody else is going to know. Get it right. Confess it. Turn from it. Maybe it's just you're lazy spiritually. I mean, you're just, you don't pray. You don't read your Bible. Thank God you come to church on Wednesday nights or you watch it on the internet, which is wonderful. What is it tonight? Is there something in your life that needs to really be pushed forward before God? Revival can't happen in your life, and if there's enough of us with junk in our hearts, it's not going to happen in our church. Confess your sins and repent of them. Here's the great thing that happens when you put all those in the blender God will work. God will work. Folks, you know what keeps God from working? I keep God from working, you keep God from working. But God says when we put these things out there sincerely, not in some kind of ritualistic, legalistic formula, we put them out there sincerely, we free the Holy Spirit up to work. Isn't that what we want? Absolutely, that's what we want. Here's three things that happen when God starts working. God will hear our prayers. Don't you want God to hear your prayers? Man, I do. Psalm 66, 18 Let's review it. If I cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You believe that? You get a phone call tonight, somebody who loves in ICU, hanging on for dear life. Are you going to have to ask for two hours to go pray and get your heart right before you can come back and pray and for God to hear you? This serious business, isn't it? This is a funny story, but it's a great story about that. Norman Vincent Peale, do you know who he was? Famous author. His dad was a pastor, too. He was a little boy. He was about 10 years old. He was smoking a cigar. 10-year-old boys like smoking cigars. You you young mamas, it'll happen. It's just going to happen. You got to act real mad, but it's going to happen. 10-year-old boys don't need to smoke cigars, correct? He's smoking a cigar. He sees his dad coming. He puts it behind his back. A lit cigar. He ended up being a preacher, not a brain surgeon, by the way. And his dad comes up, and he's trying to divert his dad's attention. He goes, Dad, you see that sign? The circus is coming to town. Are you going to give me money to go to the circus? And he said his daddy looked at him and said, Don't ask me for a favor when you've got a smoldering disobedience behind your back. Don't ask God to bless you, to help you. You're not going to be perfect, but if you're hanging on to stuff and expecting God to hear. See, so that's the whole thing. God says when we do these things, he hears. Then, let's See what it says? Then I will hear from heaven. Look in verse 15. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive. God's saying, I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to give you my undivided attention when you come to me on my terms. Isn't that great? When, when we come to God on his terms... God gives uh, God of the universe gives you and me his undivided attention. Wow. God hears our prayers. Here's the second thing God cleanses us. He cleanses us. I'm not going to look at it again on the screen, but that 1 John 1 9, it says that when we confess our sins, He cleanses us. That's the picture of God, of God spiritually just making us pure again, making us whole. Folks, what God wants is a cleansed Christian and a cleansed church and cleansed people. God says when we come to him on his terms and repentance, he does. And lastly, he restores and he revives us. The last part of that verse, I will hear hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. God told them, that a lot of the reasons they were struggling is because God was punishing them. But God said, I don't want, my, my joy is not in punishing you. My joy is in giving you life and in blessing you. Come to me on my terms, come to me on the revival recipe and let me restore you and revive you. Some of us need this desperately tonight in our lives. I would say we all need it to some degree every day, don't you? In our church, we need it, and we need it tonight, and we need it Sunday, and we need it next week. And for it to happen, it's going to take enough of us coming together to saying, God, we're going to do it on your terms, bring revival. 1985, in a a Muslim area in our world, there was a group of Christians, small group of missionaries, been there for decades, four or five decades, there had been Christians there. They had five churches. wasn't a place where... Christianity, at least at time, was illegal. But it was certainly the, the very small minority. Five churches, ineffective. Fourteen of the Christians and missionary people got together, decided to spend the night in prayer. What's wrong, God? As they prayed, God began to show them, here's why I'm not moving. Here's why I'm not answering your prayers. There's sin in your life. There's sin in your churches. You're stifling and quenching the Holy Spirit. Until you get these things right, I'm not going to move no matter how much you politic or manipulate or maneuver, they decided they were going to do it on God's terms. Within within about four years, 182,000 people had been saved in that area. They went from having five churches to having 159 churches in four years. When they put to practice God's recipe for revival, Tonight, we're going to give an invitation in just a moment. It's not a time to stand and just to end the service. It's a time to respond. You're here tonight, and you're not a Christian. Man, come tonight and give your life to Christ. You may not have another chance. You have one this evening. Come and do that. We'd love for you to join the church. You can do it after church. You can do it now. What kind of church are we? We're a church that's going to love Jesus, love people, and we're always wanting revival, always wanting revival. Christian, maybe it's where you're standing. Maybe tonight we need to come to the altar and get on our knees, pray with the minister and say, God, I want it to be different in my life. I want to do everything to make sure it's different in my church. Christian, don't, don't just stand there and, and, and sing until we're finished. Do business with God tonight. Let's stand. And as the Lord leads you, you respond to Him. Respond to Him this evening.